0: Since we're talking about story building and everything else right now, Adam, what background character building trope upsets you the most when you see it? You mean like in a backstory? Like in a backstory, like uh, I was an orphan or I was born under the ill moon, right? Like something like uh, that. Okay. You obviously
1: have something you want to rant about. Um,
0: honestly, for me, it's the orphan. I I cannot stand the character who has no family ties whatsoever. Right, Your
1: last two characters that you brought to my table, Dan, were old enough that their parents were already dead. Yes. And the second one had a big tragic backstory about it, so I'm calling bullshit on you for that. No, no.
0: And I hate it now. My next character has a fully fleshed out family. What do you got?
1: Uh, What I call the Dave method of backstory. Uh, I flipped a coin and I'm playing a girl. She is a barbarian uh, triton. She has a trident. I get that a lot. Dave is Dave is the worst for this, but Megan is also guilty of this. Megan, I am calling you out. Give me three full pages of backstory with a nemesis and some living or dead family members. I don't, I don't care. Just oh fuck, fuck, god damn it, don't hurt me, Jesus. It's a mimic, the roundtable Dungeons and Dragons
0: discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get.
1: Welcome to part two in our discussion on common plot lines that will help loosen up your writer's block. Last week, we went through the comprehensive list of the 36 dramatic situations and applied them to Dungeons and Dragons. This week, we're going to look at a few other ways to think about story so you can beef up your campaign. I'm Adam, and with me today is Dan, and this episode is called Storylines, Readers of the Lost Ark. (laughs) See, they don't always have to rhyme to make you smile. No,
0: well, I mean, references to Indiana Jones will always win. All three movies of Indiana Jones. There are a few different places to expand your horizons
1: about story. I often think about a story I like and why it resonates with me. And then I try to remove as many unnecessary details as I can
0: so I can see the skeleton of the story. Like a fourth movie. I'm with you
1: no for example what i will do is i will remove all the nouns all of the places all of the characters themselves and see what the basic structure of the story looks like so i can see the skeleton of the story and then start fleshing it out with different details so i can make a different kind of beast for my players to interact with that way i can recycle these plot lines and whatnot over and over again but they'll feel different every single time we talk about how dmd is collaborative storytelling which means that I don't always know how a scenario is going to end. I, as a dungeon master, know the setting, understand the available NPCs and their motivations, provide conflict within an agreed upon set of rules, and then present these situations to my players to interact with. I can usually guess where they will end up, but I'm often wrong on the nitty gritty details. Between the spells and abilities of the source material and the creativity and mood of the players in any given moment it's nearly impossible to know what will happen next and that's the fun I get to react last week we broke down 36 situations that you might be able to pivot your story into when you react to your players and we mentioned that for us a story is the evolution of imaginary people and events for entertainment but what about when we look at the overall arc of a story Knowing the dramatic situations is all well and good for little plot points and character beats to pivot into, but how do you craft an overall story? Well, it turns out that some very smart people have tried to answer this in the past. (laughs) And it turns out that almost every story falls into the same kind of patterns. This is explored in the book called The 7 Basic Plots by Christopher Booker. Just like last week, I'm going to break down general ideas and Dan the man here is going to give us some insights. In how he would use these ideas within Dungeons and
0: Dragons. First step is, don't call me Dan the Man. Oh no, you don't like that? Not a fan. No, no. don't you Dan the Fan then? No, Dan not the fan. Okay. Of Dan the Man.
1: Daniel the Cocker Spaniel.
0: What's a spaniel?
1: Okay. (laughs) So before we get into the seven plots, it's important to understand that the format of most stories looks very similar. And D&D is actually set up to follow that format naturally. The seven basic plots breaks it down into five stages. Stage one is the anticipation stage, which is your call to action. In D&D, this is you getting a quest. Yeah. Stage two is the dream stage, when the adventure begins and the hero has some basic success that gives
0: an illusion of invincibility.
1: This is usually the first few minor successes.
0: This is uh, gearing up, traveling along the road, and arriving at your destination.
1: After that is the frustration stage, which is the illusion of invincibility that breaks at the hands of adversarial
0: forces. In other words, this is, we're all out of spell slots and we're going to need a rest.
1: Yeah. Stage four is a nightmare stage, which brings us to the climax. This is when the fate of everything hangs by a thread.
0: The dungeon has been explored, and we know the big bad evil guy and his pet fuck off a source are in the last room.
1: And finally, there's
0: the resolution, which is when the hero overcomes all odds and succeeds in their mission. Which leads to the rogue getting to his GP, and the fighter getting his XP, and the bard getting to DP with his PP. Fine, goddamn Dan. <laughs>
1: okay, so I just want to point out here, before we move any further... Resolution is usually thought of as being the thing that happens after the climax. But that's not necessarily true. You resolve the situation by solving it. It is the act of solving it. It is that final fight is the resolution. Everything after that is the denouement, which is the outcome and the consequence. Most stories will follow this basic thread. Anticipation, dream, frustration, nightmare, and resolution. In the past, we've broken it down to be Introduction, Conflict, and Resolution. You can see how there's an overall shape to this. Last week's episode looked at the different pieces that can be put together to create these stages, but Christopher Booker says that there are only seven basic plots that can be made up of the 36 dramatic situations we've explored. He says that ultimately, it all boils down into overcoming the monster, rags to riches, quest, voyage and return, comedy, tragedy, and rebirth. Let's roll initiative and go through them, Dan got 17 oh i got a 19 nice get to hear my voice more so the first one is overcoming the monster and it's pretty straightforward the protagonist or in this case the party sets out to defeat an antagonistic force often evil which threatens the protagonist and or the protagonist's homeland you see this in beowulf dracula star
0: wars austin powers and other movies this like podcast on a weekly basis Next is Rags to Riches, which you will also see on this podcast, uh, which sees the poor protagonist acquire power, wealth, a new microphone, or a mate, lose it all, and gain it back, growing as a person. Great Expectations, The Prince and the Pauper, Cinderella, Aladdin, all of these have this Rags to Riches kind of story. The third one is called Quest, which is
1: a little different than its D&D definition. For this purpose, the protagonist and companions set out to acquire an important object Or to get to a location, they face temptations and other obstacles along the way. The Iliad, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Monty Python and the Holy Grail,
0: The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Next is the voyage and return, but it's not just about getting to the location, but going to a strange land and overcoming the unique challenges there, so that you can return with the experience, lessons, and items earned. The Odyssey, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, The Time Machine, The Hobbit, The Lion King, Back to the Future, they all have this kind of aspect to them. Comedy
1: is the fifth one, and it isn't just humor. It's a light and humorous character triumphing over obstacles with a happy or cheerful ending. A Midsummer Night's Dream and Much Ado About Nothing are good examples. Four Weddings and a Funeral is another. The Big Lebowski is one,
0: too. You don't fuck with the Jesus. Tragedy is the next one, and... It, however, revolves around a hero with major character flaws or somebody who makes a major mistake that results in their fall. They're a character who we root for and ultimately end up feeling pity for. Bonnie and Clyde, Citizen Kane, Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, and Oedipus Rex are all famous examples of this. I just want to point out for a second here that bad shit happening to good people that don't
1: deserve it is not tragedy. That is disaster, one of the plot points from last week's episode. Tragedy is when you have earned the negative outcome. Yeah. And finally, there's Rebirth, which focuses on an event that forces the protagonist to change for the better and learn to be a stronger or more empathetic individual. Beauty and the Beast, A Christmas Carol, and Groundhog Day come to mind as real examples here. Mm -hmm. Which is your favorite plot to explore as a player? And which one is your favorite plot to explore as a DM, Dan?
0: Um, honestly, as a player, I mean, I've said it a few times. I love the rags to riches story. Um, the redemption arcs as a DM, I love comedy. I love seeing my players all have their happily ever after. So comedy is the one I lean into most as the DM. I also like playing carefree D and D to a certain, like I like running carefree D and D where it's just a release more than anything else. But I'm, I'm slowly working my way out of that. I think. For me, I'm all about Voyage and Return. As a player and as a
1: Dungeon Master, this is my favorite. This is the one where you go somewhere else, accomplish something, and bring that thing back. This is legitimately what most D&D quests are. But you know me, Dan. I like to have a home base Mm -hmm. and send you guys out from the home base. Whether or not it's a city or a pirate ship or whatever it is, you guys are going to and from over and over again. Sometimes getting items, but more often than not, accomplishing tasks at dealing with people and finding really weird shit you weren't expecting yeah in the seven basic plots the main argument is that it doesn't matter how many characters appear in a story the only one that matters is the hero this is the one whose actions and persona we identify with and whose conclusion is the one we are most interested in as a result each of the other characters are merely an aspect of the story moving forward you can see how from a DD perspective this is problematic each person around the table considers their own character to be the central hero this is why we often get into arguments and pvp play is something that really every player is going to encounter eventually yep fortunately if the party itself can act as a single unit with common interests then we can treat the party as a whole like the hero i mentioned briefly in the last episode that there's this basic conflict of man versus man man versus environment and man versus self and that man versus self is difficult to explore. But If you treat the party like Christopher Booker treats the hero, then inter-party conflict can act as a kind of man versus self. Because they are out to defeat their own purposes. Mm -hmm. So, where does this leave us? We have a basic structure of anticipation stage, dream stage, frustration stage, nightmare stage, and resolution. We have seven overall stories of overcoming the monster, rags to riches, quest, voyage and return, comedy, tragedy, and rebirth that can all fit within this structure. We have 36 dramatic situations that can make up the conflicts, consequences, subplots, and story beats of the overall story. And we know that we can have our antagonists for any given dramatic situation, be another entity, a scenario, or our own inter-party issues. So all that's left is the experience itself. We know that the party will move through those stages over the course of the campaign, but it feels a little impersonal at this point. It's not about the characters, it's about the story. So, the dramatic situations can get incredibly personal, but when do we use each one? And how do the players stay engaged in the story? For these answers, I turn to Joseph Campbell and his amazing and seminal book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. In this book, he discusses the hero's journey, in which he breaks down the 17 stages of a character's arc into three categories. It's very, very similar To the five stages that Christopher Booker proposed. And I'm certain that Booker leaned heavily on the research that Joseph Campbell did. Campbell's breakdown of story is based on the cultural touchstones, myths, legends, and stories that all human cultures seem to have embraced. Independently of each other. He goes into the way that Mayans and Aztecs and Egyptians and Romans and Greeks and ancient Chinese culture all have the same basic structure of story. Mm -hmm. We're going to use Star Wars A New Hope as a template for this because it was written on the back of this structure but there are also so many more films that follow this method to one degree or another. Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, so many follow the hero's journey. And I'm not kidding when I say that I look at every player at my table and try to apply this method so that they can feel the most fulfilled while I'm focusing on the overall story. Think about it as managing character arcs within a plot arc. I mentioned last episode, but how every one of my players had dealt with the loss of a loved one. Yeah. But it came at different times. It was not all the same thing that happened all at the same moment for the same session. It was drawn out over an entire two-year campaign. I will do this elevating one person's story arc and putting a spotlight on it while others fade to the background and then mixing it up and swapping around for long time, long-term play. You don't have to play the long game like I do with this but it's really difficult to do with a short game. While my party is navigating the five stages of story through a basic plot or two, I choose the best option of the 36 dramatic situations to push each of the characters within the party on their own hero's journey. It's complicated and it's difficult, and it often requires a story map in the back of my DM binder, which is why I never let Dan touch my binder. (laughs) But when I can pull it off well, every person at the table has a rewarding experience that checked the boxes of evolution, imagination, and entertainment, which is what we were talking about last week. We're going to hit this as best as we can with the limited time provided, but I really encourage everyone to buy the book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. It's dry as fuck, but you will learn so damned much from it. So, let's jump into it. I'm going to break down the first section of it, um, and Dan, you're going to give us the Star Wars side of things. Sure, sure. So Act 1 is called Departure and it's made up of five parts. Part 1 is called The Call to Adventure. We start off on the daily status quo, but the hero gets some piece of information that pushes them to head off into the unknown. This is usually represented
0: as a literally unknown location. This is when Luke wants to go to Tashi's Station to pick up some power converters, um, and that doesn't isn't quite what draws him out. But he, in the act of cleaning R two, sees Leia's hologram, and that's what's finally going to draw him out.
1: Yeah, that and R two actually leaving yeah. as well. Yeah. Right. His status quo is the wine, yeah. but he's never going to do anything about it. He's exactly. going to bitch. Right? Yeah. Um, the second part is called refusal of the call, and this is when the hero gives into his obligations, fears, insecurities duties or feelings of inadequacy and decides to stay
0: uh in star wars this is when luke caves to uncle owen's demands and decides to stay at, at the moisture farm for another season
1: you hear it in his line to 3po about i can't go out there he does this to obi-wan later as yeah. well Right? Yeah. he refuses to call a couple of times the next one is called supernatural aid and this is when the hero is committed to the quest and he discovers a helper or guide usually magical that provides him with an artifact or talisman that
0: will help later. I mean, Obi-Wan handing him the lightsaber for the first time directly after Luke delivering this message to Obi-Wan, right? That kind of cements them together. The next one is the
1: crossing of the first threshold. And this is when the hero moves out of their comfort zone
0: and heads out to the unknown and dangerous future. In Star Wars, Luke isn't really given the option to leave because, I mean, his family just got all murdered. But... uh He still makes the conscious decision to go to Moss Isley to investigate the forward-moving path.
1: Yeah, he acknowledged it directly in the line. There's nothing for me here. Yeah. Right. That is the moment when he decides to move forward. He could have stayed and tried to rebuild, but he doesn't. The next one is Belly of the Whale in the final part of Departure. And this is when the hero separates from the familiar for the last time. Usually this is done by overcoming a minor obstacle but getting sucked into the unknown
0: never to return to the same place as the same person i mean he gets chased off of tatooine the act of them leaving tatooine is what you know it's it's luke leaving his home planet behind right like this this is him finally pulling out that leash I would say yeah, the
1: obstacle as well is going to be you know the stormtrooper shooting at him. Yep. The obstacle is going to be Obi Wan having to convince Han as well. Like there are a couple of obstacles in here, but you're absolutely right. Once he goes, that farm boy never comes back to Tatooine. In D and D terms, this part of the story is usually represented by getting a quest, which is a call to action, weighing whether or not it's worth it, which is refusal of the call, gearing up or getting a rest in which is supernatural aid, leaving the safe confines of wherever they're stationed, which is the crossing of the first threshold, and coming up on their first obstacle out in the world, which is usually belly of the whale. By the time that you get those those first experience
0: points, you're no longer the same. Act two of the hero's journey is something called the initiation, and it's made up of six parts. The first part is where we start, usually in act two of the three act play, with the road of trials, This is a series of tests where the hero's transformation begins. There are usually three trials here where the hero begins to step up into his own self.
1: In Star Wars, Luke undergoes three important transformations. He has his first successful moment with the Force in the Millennium Falcon. He steps up to be a leader for the first time by convincing Han and Chewie to help rescue the princess. And he engages in combat for the first time
0: and wins. Following that is the meeting with the goddess, which traditionally gives the hero a reward that will help them in the future. This is part of most myths where the boy becomes a man and pushes forward the basic concepts of the hero winning the girl. There's usually a sense of victory here, coupled with a sense of familiar.
1: In Star Wars, this is literally the case. Luke finds Leia, who will become a major ally moving forward. In this case, we can see how you can sidestep that toxic masculinity and achieve the quest while getting a basic reward.
0: After that is the woman as the temptress. In this portion of the story, the hero faces temptation, always visceral, but usually physical or pleasurable. This temptation is there to try to get the hero to forsake his mission. In a lot of older James Bond movies, this is literally where the femme fatale shows up, urging Bond to come back to bed. We get something a little different with Star Wars. Although there's the same hesitation that
1: could have gone very, very poorly if Luke (laughs) had given in to temptation. That temptation is when he sees Obi-Wan acting as a Jedi Knight for the first time. Yeah. He wanders away from the escape plan to watch and feed his lust for these old stories of good versus evil. When Obi-Wan dies... Luke is further tempted by revenge, although it doesn't last long. That blast door closes, and he's back on plan.
0: Now, after all that unpleasant, sexist musing, we move on to the atonement with the father. This step is, uh, complicated, but ultimately boils down to the hero confronting and getting initiated by whatever holds the most power over him. This is usually a father figure— But all the stages in the hero's journey thus far have pointed to this moment. And everything that happens afterwards from here will be a result of this. Okay, I'm going to get on my Star Wars
1: soapbox for a minute because this is a controversial opinion. Okay? But I honestly believe that Luke's story in A New Hope is his journey to become a pilot like his father was. Before Vader was his father, before he went off to become a Jedi, before he became a hermit that harvested blue milk, he was a farm boy. Who wanted to get out into space and fight the bad guys. Being a pilot like his father before him. That's the story the original movie tells. And I think most people miss that these days. He wants to make a difference. Save the world and shoot enemy fighters out of the sky. When the tyrannical imperial violence that has ruled the entire movie comes to a head. He finally gets to sit in a turret and shoot TIE fighters out of the sky. He's been seemingly abandoned by Obi-Wan and has no home left. So he faces the abyss of the violence head on and comes out the victor. Don't get cocky, kid. Mm -hmm. Of course, he doesn't know that the whole thing was a ruse, but he never figures it out either. So it's still a defining moment. This moment gives him the confidence to move forward with his fate in the rest of the movie and series.
0: The next part is called the apotheosis. I had to clarify with Adam how to pronounce that (laughs) word because I was going to mess it up. But this is when the hero has gained a greater understanding and perspective of the world and then refocuses his efforts to take on an even bigger threat. After he stepped up to
1: be the hero, he delivers the line, I used to bullseye womp rats in my T-16 back home. They're not much bigger than two meters. Look at him telling the experienced rebels to man up and fight. The scared and whiny farm boy from Act 1 is nowhere to be
0: seen anymore. The last stage of the initiation is called the ultimate boon. This is where the hero finally gets what he wants. It's the thing he's wanted the most this entire time and now he gets it.
1: This furthers my theory that a new hope is about Luke becoming a pilot like his father. The ultimate boon for him is being given an X-Wing and getting to be Red 5 next to his role model Biggs. Star Wars is not a deep movie full of character moments. There are a lot of ways that this could have been exemplified. We could have sat in these moments of loss and grieving for Obi-Wan instead of Luke herp his way into the next thing. But the structure is the same. This was high adventure, high fantasy, Buck Rogers style. Yeah. Right? And that's where all this is coming from. But it was clearly written by George Lucas to be the hero with the thousand faces. And he has said as much. This is not my extrapolation on this. He has said this was a direct influence for him. Yeah. It was interesting to see how he played it out differently without really leading into the same character beats as Hercules does in his storyline, which again, Hercules' storyline follows this path. A Beowulf is another one that very much follows the hero's journey. And they're from two different cultures and we see it all over the place. So... It may feel like I'm stretching a little bit at this, but trust me when I say this has been tweaked. In Dungeons & Dragons, things though are far more freeform. There are random encounters, rooms upon rooms of bad guys, and ever-escalating loot to obtain. But if you think about it, each of these moments, the trials, rewards, temptations, overcoming personal obstacles, leveling up, and completing personal goals, these are all things that you do in every single quest. I think most DMs though, should take these themes and secretly add them as milestone moments for each character in the party over the entire campaign for character development. I wouldn't do it for every character at the same time, but everyone should get to experience these character moments. Hello, podcast people. Podcast people? We're recording. Yes, but it makes them sound like pod... We're recording! You're recording, Hello, podcast people. We've got a couple of things going on that you might not know about, and so we thought we'd cut away to a little reminder. First of all, we just want to point everyone to our
0: YouTube channel again. We appreciate that all of you listen on your respective favorite podcast apps, but the It's a Mimic YouTube page has all of our shows laid out in playlists. That means you can listen to our Dragon episodes back-to-back, or dig through the Campaign Builder or Touring the Multiverse series without scrolling through the backlog or having to use a search function.
1: New episodes get uploaded within a week of airing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever, but the whole backlog is up
0: there. Even the episodes we we're embarrassed about. Yeah, fuck, those early cold opens were sloppy. Yeah. And delicious. The other thing we want to hey, mention... Dan, it, what? You, you know what else is sloppy but delicious? Whatever you're going to say next is just going to get cut, so... Well, uh, The other thing we want to mention is our sneaky little store that lives an unassuming little life on our website...
1: There are stickers, magnets, phone cases, notebooks... Cups, water
0: bottles, coffee mugs, and travel wait, mugs. Wait, 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 I could have a mug? I'm tired of your ugly mug already, man. I want a mug. Ooh. We even have masks in a variety of sizes because we're socially conscious people. The current designs are for the It's a Mimic mic and the Deep Dark Irradiance logo, but we'll be updating the store as time goes on. How big are the mugs? I don't know. There's a standard one and a tall one. And a travel mug too. Jesus, I need to look at this website more often. So please take a second to check out what we have to offer. We really appreciate the donations we've received through the website, but we want to make sure that you guys have the option of getting something for your hard-earned money. Every little bit helps keep the lights on and the side projects rolling, and we love you for your support. So thank you to everyone out there who visits www.itsamimic.com and checks out our online store there. Hey, <laughs> There's even a little pin with the logo on it. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel for perusing the older episodes. Now... Without any further delay, let's head back to the show. Jesus are three different kinds of stickers, Dan. We are capitalist whores. Will you please take these damn commercials seriously?
1: No. Act three is called Return. It's made up of six parts too, and this is also where the Star Wars example falls apart. (laughs) Because at a certain point the writers just gave up and slapped medals on our main characters. Everyone wants to know why Chewbacca didn't get a medal, but I'm also wondering about the other handful of pilots who survived the Battle of Yavin 4. Where are they? Wedge got fucking robbed, man. I love Star Wars, but it's a sloppy ending, and they didn't really give the audience the payoff it could have had. And Luke seemingly completed his hero's journey off-screen between movies. So let's get into it. Sure. The refusal of the return marks the beginning of Act 3. Having found bliss and enlightenment, the hero might not want to return home and share
0: his gifts. Star Wars hand-waves this, in a sense, giving Luke a moment where he wants to believe in his superior flying abilities instead of using the Force like Obi-Wan's voice urges him to. Instead, Han and Chewbacca have a stronger example of this stage when they decide to take their money and run. The magic flight comes next,
1: wherein the hero has to try and escape with his boon.
0: This can be just as dangerous as getting the boon in the first place. Again, Star Wars kind of flubs this one. The boon of being a pilot is certainly dangerous when you're in an X-Wing taking on the Death Star, but it's the acceptance of the Force, which is an objectively bigger boon, if not the personal one to Luke, which tracks Darth Vader to focus on him. This is as close as the protagonist and antagonist come to direct conflict in this movie and Luke literally never even faces him. Kinda sloppy. Uh-huh. After this
1: is Rescue from Without. Most of you know where the Star Wars thing is coming from with here already. You need help getting into a mess, and sometimes you need help getting out of it. This is especially true when the hero has been weakened by the ordeal up until this point.
0: Woohoo! Alright, kid, let's blow this thing and go home. I mean, Wedge is out, Biggs is dead, R2 is fried. But out of the darkness of space comes the gallant knights on his shining, rusty, pe- rusty piece of shit trash can. What a <laughs> pile
1: of garbage.
0: <laughs> but the Millennium Falcon shows up out of nowhere and rescues Luke at the last moment. Now that
1: the hero is won and the next stage is the crossing of the return threshold, this is the part where they apply the lessons learned to their new life. Returning to the status quo as much as they can while using gained knowledge and wisdom to have a
0: better life. So, uh, Cars on the Table, New Hope just doesn't do this. No. I mean, you can argue that Luke comes back with his friends victorious and happy, as opposed to sullen, like when he left, sad that Han is going to leave, right? But there's no return to Tatooine. There's no return to his old life. A better example of this, if I'm to be completely honest, is in Lord of the Rings. Especially in the books, yeah, when they were turning out to face off against Sharky. Mm -hmm. The penultimate
1: stage is Master of the Two Worlds, where the hero has achieved a new balance between the physical world around them and the spiritual world inside.
0: This scene, like the last one, is missing from A New Hope. We have to jump to Return of the Jedi in order to find Luke having a proper spiritual rebalancing at the end of the movie.
1: Yeah, the moment where he burns Darth Vader's um, corpse, right? Yeah. Where he brings that physical and spiritual and now I am a Jedi Knight. I feel like they did that between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back too because he's, what is he, General Skywalker at that point, right?
0: Where was Uh, that? Just like, I mean, you're a skilled pilot for an afternoon and all of a sudden you're a general of the army. Oh man, they were pretty desperate in the rebellion.
1: Okay, so finally there is freedom to live. This is the freedom from worrying about death. It's sometimes called living in the moment where you don't regret the past or worry about the future.
0: Yeah, this is the ceremony at the end of uh, A New Hope. Uh, stress-free, all of the heroes get to celebrate for a moment, knowing that they've completed their journey, and 3PO gets a new little oil bath. In d we often see these
1: stages play out in subtle ways. You see parties struggling with splitting loot, having to escape the dungeon or lair they just defeated... Finding their way back home, spending their loot and dealing with the fallout of completing their quest, they level up and they settle into some much deserved downtime. On a bigger scale, this is usually wrapped up in the final moments of a campaign where we get to explore the characters' epilogues. On a smaller scale, this freedom to live is usually interrupted by the next call to adventure and this circular map of the return home starts to look more cyclical Mm -hmm. and more like a spiral out to become bigger and more important. The books that we have discussed over these two episodes have been The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell, The Seven Basic Plots by Christopher Booker, and The 36 Dramatic Situations by George Pulte. I will be putting this in the show notes so you guys can check out the spellings of these names and order them online
0: as you see fit. If you derive any sort of insights from these books after you give them a read, be sure to let us know what you thought of them. You could reach us on Instagram, Facebook, and on Reddit at r slash um, You could also email us at info at itsamimic.com, where if you have any questions that you want us to answer on the mic, those will get added to our mailbag, which we will break down four times a year. So we have a campaign made up of
1: five stages for the party to go through as a whole, where we explore one or more plots with a number of dramatic situations that can use the three kinds of conflicts. And all the while, each character is slowly exploring their own 17-stage hero's journey. All of this is because we want a collaborative story that focuses on the evolution of imaginary people and events for entertainment. Dan, that is a lot to unpack. (laughs) And obviously, some aspects are going to get highlighted more than others, depending on the table, the DM, the campaign that you're in, whether or not you're running a published campaign or you're doing your own homebrew. And every time that you come back to the table, you should focus on... Different highlights and different ways of doing it. Even if it's the same basic structure, you may spend more time dealing with the call to action or the return to the threshold. Yeah. So, like I said last episode, you need to listen to your table. Maybe it's just about rolling dice, eating pizza, and killing goblins. But if you want to go deeper, then there's quite a bit of depth to sink into. But honestly, it's way too much for a one shot or even a three shot. So, how do you go about condensing these themes and techniques? into a basic outline for a shorter story. Well, first of all, for a one-shot that is more concerned with plot than character journey, I'd keep an eye on the hero's journey for general inspiration of the order of events, but largely I throw it out. Right? We're not making a myth tonight.
0: Yeah, we don't have the time for that.
1: No. I'd focus on the seven basic plots, choose one that interests the party the most, and then find a couple of dramatic situations from last episode that can get me there. These will be the calls to action and clear objectives. And finally, I'd rely on the five stages we talked about at the beginning of this episode. Anticipation, dream, frustration, nightmare, and resolution. And again, really quick definition of that. Anticipation is your status quo and the idea that you will be questing. Dream is I'm invincible. Frustration is, oh shit, no I'm not. Nightmare is here's the freaking slog of getting getting through this and getting our asses handed to us. And resolution is the big climax. So, hey, guess what? You need five interesting encounters for your party in a one-shot? There you go. Those are the five. Yeah. Anticipation, dream, frustration, nightmare, and resolution. You mix in different aspects of combat, exploration, and social pillars of D&D. You listen to the Campaign Builder series about <laughs> dynamic encounters so you can mix it in even more. And you just filled up a three-hour session. It's that simple, cheap, and fun. So, Dan, let's, let's fucking Let's do it. So- Let's build a one-shot right now. Sure.
0: Okay, you choose. Choose one of the seven basic plots. Um, I feel like there's going to be a lot of jokes uh, for us to overcome the monster. Uh, I'll wink. But I instead, I want to do comedy. We just got out of a long, hard, dreary slog of a campaign. I want a happy ending here. Let's go with comedy.
1: Okay, well, jump over to last episode then. Grab two. We're just going to call it two. Dramatic situations from the list so that we can just kind of mash them together and see how well they fit. Pick two at random Dan. Um two
0: at random? Alright. Um I got a D20. Let's 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 do it this way. Here roll two D20 and then we'll re-roll if you get to it. Okay, so I got a five and a four. So that's nine.
1: You got a five and a four that's nine. So roll again. Uh nineteen. Okay, so hold on let's see what that gives us. So Dan build me a plot from this. Number nine is daring enterprise. A daring enterprise is when someone exhibits their courage by taking away an object or item from an opponent by overpowering them. Okay. And number 19 is slaying of kin unrecognized. And this is when you accidentally kill someone or you kill someone and then find out that they were one of the good guys. One of your kin. Um. So
0: how how deep do we want to go into this plot here? A one shot, Dan. Just a one shot. Well, okay. Well... I mean, the the daring enterprise of getting this one item, um, it is a... Uh, B- MacGuffin? It, well, it's it's got to be a MacGuffin, but uh, I don't want to have the... It's the one object of power or blah, blah, blah. I want it to be an antidote. I want it to be a cure-all. Sure. Right? Um, and I want it to be the cure for a, a disease that is uh, raging in an area that... Um, Patient Zero is an NPC friend of yours. And you don't find that out until later. Okay. All right. So let's... Zombies. Okay. So zombies. It's a zombie plague with an alchemical, a heavy quotation cure. There's your one session. So
1: they've got to go get this antidote from someone who's guarding it.
0: Yes. Um, I would say a... Probably um,
1: a necromancer Go with something.
0: Go with a... Re- well, no, I wouldn't say a necromancer or something. Go with a reverse uh, I Am Legend to it. And uh, there's that one guy who's guarding the person who knows the the formula for the cure. Your party has to go and get the formula from the person who's being held captive. See, this is already more interesting than most one-shots that I've seen. Yeah. So let's
1: start from the top, Dan. All right, keeping an eye on combat, uh, exploration, and social, let's start off with the anticipation stage. And if you remember correctly, the anticipation stage
0: is your call to action. okay. So with any one-shot, I want to start off with a combat. This helps your party members uh, really feel out their characters before they really know who they are. It's a one-shot. They just built these people. They, they probably built them for mechanical combat purposes anyway. Right? So so get that out there. Help them feel out their characters with a combat. In this case, because we're at a zombie apocalypse level encounter or, or session, um, I want to have that one NPC come up and describe to the party that he knows that there's a cure he knows where it is and a bunch of zombies jump him now in for me it is vitally important that the npc survives this and now they have a wounded npc who knows where this thing is that they have to bring with them
1: okay and they kill the zombies. they killed the zombies. it's relatively
0: yeah. easy they they're mid-combat zombies, yeah exactly
1: so. Okay, um, the next one is called Dream Stage. This is when the adventure begins, all right? And you have some basic successes.
0: Yeah, uh, this is... uh, Honestly, I want to say... I got Campaign Builder on the mind, so I want to say that this is an exploration pillar moment. This is your skill challenge. This is the moment where your party, even with the wounded um, Hurt NPC, are moving their way through the town following his weird directions to get to this location where a cure exists do you think he seems to know too much um i think for the more astute players uh or player characters they would start maybe picking up that there's probably something going on here but i wouldn't make it too overt not here not yet okay so the next
1: stage is the frustration stage and this is when the illusion of invincibility is lost at the hands of adversarial forces so this is when, no, guys, we need a rest, right? Like, you've gotten your ass kind of handed to you. And you are not the big dick heroes you thought you were.
0: Um, I would say this is where the NPC starts to uh, succumb to his wounds. The party has traveled across the city. They're getting close, maybe a couple rooftops away. And the they have this NPC who's been guiding them and giving them warnings, heads up. And, of course, I'm throwing special kind of zombies at them through the skill challenge from before and the encounter before. Um, He is now succumbing to his wounds. He's passed out. And the party now needs to take a break and deal with this because they don't really know where they're going without him.
1: All right. So then we hit the nightmare stage. This brings us up to just before the climax where shit is starting to get real dire. The fate of everything hangs by a thread.
0: Um... The NPC is starting to succumb to zombieism and through ragged breaths gives them the last like three houses to jump to and then passes out. He's done. But his his heart rate is racing, his temperature is through the roof. Um, he's maybe starting to convulse. They need to get this guy there, and they arrive at this location with this, you know, burden almost, and they see that the scientist that this guy was leading you towards that has come up with the cure or the alchemist who this guy was leading you to who has the cure is guarded by some big fuck off like super zombie
1: okay so finally there's the resolution which of
0: course is overcoming all odds succeeding in the mission they fight They win. They win. And I think it's at this point that your party would also realize that the NPC who's been with you this entire time is actually like the necromancer who has been, who started the plague. And in the act of uh, intentionally trying to draw you towards. the The big bad guy that you fought
1: with the big super zombie was actually the guy that has been out there trying to kill this guy who's spreading this plague. Because it's not a super zombie; it was a flesh golem.
2: Oh,
0: yeah, I and like so it. So he's
1: not a necromancer at all, and these two are opposing alchemists or whatever. Yeah, right. And so you realize that you've been—you have to kill this guy that you've been protecting the whole time. And I think that's just a, a fun way to end the. Yeah, and you kill him, and of course magic, and so all the zombies <laughs> just all the Z- zombies just die. Right. Yeah, they lose their thread
0: of connection. To it's
1: him. the Chitari, you know. everything powers down the independence day solution right yeah they just plug a macbook into the necromancer and it all goes
0: goes away so adam it's your turn now to build this one shot um start off we got to choose the one of the seven basic plots here so are you going to overcome the monster do rags to riches a quest voyage and return comedy tragedy or rebirth let's do quest i mean yeah, it's a one-shot that tracks.
1: Yeah, right. Uh, we just need to go to that place over there and get to the thing.
0: Okay, now let's do uh, two dramatic situations. Let's roll the dice. What do we got? The first one is going to bring six, number six on the list. Num- and the second one will be number 17. Number six is disaster. Um, it's when a person with incredible power loses that power to an enemy and is defeated. Sure. Okay, and 17 is Fatal imprudence. Someone who loses an important item or wrongs a victim, either not by neglect or ignorance.
1: Okay. I got this one. This is going to be a dethroned king. He needs to get back to the city where his family is from. He's been kicked off the throne. He's lost it. And this is the beginning of it. And he's using the end of his riches to hire you guys on
0: to escort him. To protect him in the journey? To protect him in the journey. Okay. Uh, so... How does that anticipation stage roll out then? Okay, so the
1: anticipation stage, again, is um, the call to action. This will be a social encounter, right? Where in the middle of the night, you're in your guild house. I'm just going to start you guys off in a guild. Of course. And uh, there's going to be a knock on the door in the middle of the night. By the dead of night. And a haggard looking, but very familiar character bursts in through the door and says, I need your help. I have gold. Help me. And it is the dethroned king. Yep. Yeah. What about the dream stage here? The dream stage is going to be at the guild house. You're gearing up. I'm going to give you a little bit of a shopping opportunity. You don't get a whole lot of that downtime in a one one shot. shot. Yeah. Um, Because I'm probably going to have a couple of random encounters in here that are not really a part of the overarching plot
0: it's mostly going to be that social side of things where like you're you're bartering and and bargaining and uh like he might have that special item he gives your paladin or something right
1: yeah this could also be the idea of sneaking out of the city as well so you've geared up and you're sneaking out and it's relatively easy it's going to be not quite your misty step misty step misty step all the way through but you're going to be able to get past the town guards if you end up failing
0: you gotta kill a town guard on the way out sure um what about your frustration stage how does this start to break bad for the party um it is going to
1: like as you are fleeing the horns are going off in the city behind you and they're sending
0: riders out to find the king did he just get like uh overtaken by like a coup yeah yeah okay so now they're just trying to chop the head off the snake Exactly, and,
1: and it's your job to get him out, and we're going to make him a sympathetic character. Yeah, of course. Uh, nightmare stage, what's your climax here? When you finally get to wherever this this walled city, this area is that he's going to get to where his family is, when you finally get there, you realize that this coup wasn't just dethroning him. It was wiping clear his family, and this is a city under siege, and you have to now get
0: into the next place. Oh, jeez, I like that. Um Finally, the resolution. How are you wrapping this up?
1: You're going to reunite him with the family, right? And I'd give young kids and old women and whatnot for him to reunite with. And you get to kill the person who is dethroning, right? The general that is in charge of this whole thing. Not the figurehead that's replacing him back where he came from, but the mastermind behind it all. Maybe the person that double-crossed him in the first place. Oh, I like that, yeah. So, um, and then
0: you... I mean I could launch that into a whole campaign from there, right? Well, it's funny, you like you establish that, you know, he made a deal with a friend back in the city where he was raised, and that um deal introduced him to the guy who is now taking over. And then you get there and this this friend is now the bad guy. And like throughout the entire campaign, he's talking about this friend who he's excited to go see and talk about what happened and then you flip it on its head, right? So I've got a couple of questions for you now. Sure. We talked a while about the hero's journey and we just built a couple of
1: scenarios for one shots, which then ignored the hero's journey. (laughs) But I want to talk about the character arc itself. You've gone through a couple of character arcs and you've seen, you came in at the tail end of a campaign for me and you saw character arcs um, get cut off partway through at the end. There was resolution for a couple of people and the entire lack of resolution, (laughs) it ended (laughs) on a cliffhanger for everyone else. When you deal with the hero's journey, let's roll dice for this. When you are DMing and you think of the idea of either the three-act structure or the five stages of the basic plot. Sure. Or the hero's journey. What is the one note that stands out as the most important to you? I got a 17. I got a five. What is the
0: defining character moment for every character that you want to give to your players? I want to give them that moment of the magic flight. I want them to feel like the big damn superheroes for at least a minute. I want to give them that, that feeling that everything that they've worked for has come to this point, right? A lot of that is going to be building up throughout, right? In my current campaign, I have a paladin who isn't living up to the prestige that his family demands of him including his brothers who are paragons of that prestige and is now trying to make his own story. I've got a ex pirate who is trying to find a sense of belonging after being ousted by his crew. I have a goblin who has been abandoned by his uh, teacher and master and the only person who ever thought of him as something other than just a lowly goblin. And I have a hunter who, who is also looking for their trainer, but she has this deep familial personal tie with them and they have been stolen from her. She doesn't know where they are. The master went on his own accord. This one, it was abrupt and sudden and there's loss. All four of those players, I want to end in a thing where they either have found their new home, have reached that level of prestige and are being able to display it in front of their family, able to overcome the crimes committed against them by their pirate uh, captain that you know abused them, to show up the master and show that they are worth more than just being abandoned and left by the side of the road and find and protect or do what they need to do to have some closure over the sudden loss of their family figure that they have there, right? This this freedom to be able to move on from that, right? I need to have that big beat for all of them, right? And it doesn't have to all be at the same time, but the magic flight is going to be where a lot of those storylines start to converge when I'm wrapping up the the campaign.
1: So this is when you start to lay the groundwork for it. You're not talking about actually experiencing these moments themselves but the the previous moments leading up to it yeah this is not being the master of the two worlds this is not um the crossing of the return threshold this is we have um succeeded in our objective and now we got to get back with it so we can implement it it's that moment of hope yes yeah the big thing for me is i look at the hope but far earlier in it The call to action is so important. And it's something I think that you take for granted because you are such a long-term DM. (laughs) Fair enough. And you have this natural ability to just do it. And we saw it with your plot hook a moment ago. The initial grab to drag the players in. The reason for doing this. The call to adventure. Now, most of the time, as a DM, you say, Oh, hey, there's a... There's a tavern full of people. There's one shifty character sitting off in the corner smoking a pipe by himself. There's one guy stationed up at the bar. There's a minstrel on the stage with a piano player beside him. There are two old dwarven women arguing by the door. And there's a crying halfling on the stairs. What would you guys like to do? And you know that there are all these plot lines that you have set up. And you're waiting to see which one these guys grab on. Now, you and I have enough experience to say... There's just the fucking one. All of these um, plot hooks are all going to head in a different way to the same overarching story. There are many roads that lead to Rome. Exactly. Yeah. There are many roads to Amelia. So there... Don't worry. It's coming. I promise. (laughs) Me and Brad have both been sitting there going, our episodes were the next ones to release. Oh, Dave literally slaps me in the back of the head about this on a regular basis. Yeah.
0: There have been technical difficulties for the podcast land. It's just COVID related. It's
1: just been a time. Anyway, not the point. So, (laughs) So the idea is that you specifically have a natural instinct for hooking the players and getting them in. And you give them very limited and very clear options on the call to adventure. When they don't take it, you are very good at on your feet coming up with another way to get there. Yeah. But the call to action is so hard. It is so hard for new DMs who are not sure and not confident enough in their own shoes to be able to implement with new players, especially who don't
0: know what their options are. Do you want to know what my philosophy is for building campaign, starting call to actions? Absolutely. Um, Well, we should probably have a podcast about that. Catch us next time. No. No, no, no. we'll do it now. Okay, fine. I, I do a little bit of psychology on it and I look at my players and whether this is at a convention where I know nobody or it's a well-established relationship around a table with my guys on my Friday night group or whatever it is. I know they're going to respond to one of a handful of things. It's either going to be greed. Yes. You know, dangle that big shiny thing in front of them and watch them chase after it. It is big and shiny, isn't it? It's going to be lust. That's what I said. Right. Um, or it's going to be that desire for justice. It's going to be that uh, what makes right, and it's going to be one of those three things nine times out of ten. Depending on the crew. Depending on the crew. I think
1: your Friday group does not give a shit about justice. Anymore.
0: Uh no, no. I I think they there is. There is a lean in that direction. They're getting a lot better. I've roasted them a bunch of times on the podcast, <laughs> uh, but they're getting a lot better in in fleshing out their character choices a lot more, especially when it comes to the call of action. But when it comes to one-shots... I mean- Honestly, lay out uh, one path that has those three features leading into it, right? So have... Um, The right to justice, the well-being of this uh, NPC in this nightmare. Save the town, whatever it is, right? right? The lust of save the maiden or wealth. I also like the accumulating of wealth. I put in that lust as well. The need to save those who are lesser than as well. Like I'd kind of put that there. And then the greed of uh, wealth, weapons, power, position, prestige, that level of stuff. Have one of those options all lead to the same road, right? And the fun thing about that is then you could have, you, you kind of get a look at your the layout of your players where you'll have two players choose one, one player choose the other, and two players choose the third, right? But they all head in the same direction. But they all head in the same direction. But now because you've hooked in those players in that way, you know what those players are looking for in that campaign, So what we're doing here is we're talking about these different plot points. Yeah. Right? These 36 dramatic These are part of the 36, yeah.
1: Right. And so you you grab one and then you say, how do I hook in these three pillars, essentially, Mm -hmm. of storytelling to get my people in? So my next question is, when you are a player, what are you looking for? What is the thing that you want to experience in the hero's journey?
0: I mean, completion, I guess.
1: Well, it's well, the one thing you never get in a DD and d campaign, right? Uh, yeah. how, how many campaigns have you been in? And how many have you actually seen the
0: end of? I have seen the end of, I want to say, not including one shots, a little over half a dozen campaigns that have gone from level one to 20 or five to 20 or whatever. Like the storyline has completed, I want to say seven or eight campaigns. I have been playing this game for 20 something years. On an almost weekly basis. Hundreds of campaigns I've had shrivel up after the first session. Why? Is there a tool that we've talked about in the last two weeks that would have solved that? <sighs> Players putting in more work to develop backstories and communicate to their... Uh, so it is It is a boredom thing. It is a story thing. The story falls it, apart. It, it is a story thing. or Or the DM has his one path that he wants everybody to go in and they choose not to whether by being toxic players or just uninterested in that plot line because it wasn't communicated that that's where we were thinking going down the, ahead, right? That, that's why we get
1: into the evolution of imaginary people and events for entertainment. Yeah. Just because
0: it interests you doesn't mean it'll interest everybody else. And And that's why session zeros are so important in generating that excitement, that anticipation for that entertainment.
1: I saw a thing on Reddit Of course. Um, Where there was a guy who was recently ranting and bitching about the fact that he was a DM and his players held a session zero without him. And they built their characters and he was so excited to build this campaign and he feels like he got the short end of the stick. He feels like he got the legs cut out from underneath him on it. I was
0: on board until I was told that they built characters without his input. Um, Building characters, and this is something I still struggle with because I build characters all the time that I intend to play. Oh my god, and then
1: three days later I find out, no, I'm not playing a Dragonborn Paladin. I'm going to play a freaking Tiefling Paladin. And it's he's got a wacky name, and it's called this. And then I'm like, all right, Dan. No, it's not a Paladin anymore. He's a warlock, but he's got three levels of fighter, and he's a gnome. Okay,
0: Dan. We're no. starting at level one, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The character building process, if you're not going to do it around a table, and it's come to the session prepared to start with these new characters, it should still be heavily guided and input should be had between the party right and and beyond beyond i'm playing a fighter i'm playing a wizard i'm playing the rogue i'm playing the cleric i yeah we are not saying
1: allow other people to tell you what to play
0: yeah but we are
1: saying start this collaboration together yeah my response to this whole thing i started typing and i went adam you've done 15 paragraphs you need to just put it down and come back to it tomorrow and then i just deleted my post because i wasn't adding anything new i was just ranting but um, my perspective is you—they haven't had a session zero yet. A session zero includes a dungeon master saying, "Here are my plot hooks. Which one are you guys interested in? Are we looking for
0: high fantasy, dark fantasy, um, fairy tales?
1: D- which Honestly, direction? look
0: look inside Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft for a lot of that kind of broad category, like high fantasy, dark fantasy." Yeah, they get into
1: the different kinds of horror.
0: Yeah, the but horror, but you could extrapolate from that into absolutely everything else, right? So I, like, you need to have a DM be a part of this discussion,
1: especially because when this person is sitting there saying, hey, I'm going to be a fighter because I want to be a battle master and cross over into Warlock around level eight, the DM should be taking notes. Yes. How often are you taking notes? How, like, when you were a DM in session zero, or even when players are just chatting around
0: a table? Um, all the friggin' time. Um, in the wonderful age of only playing DD on a computer screen that we have gone through for the past year, having that second monitor on my computer has been a godsend. Oh, no. Because kidding, right? I will say a random name or something and the party will latch on to be like "Fuck, okay i gotta put that one into the npc chart or um the paladin will say something about his you know father figure from this round. okay i gotta put that in because i'm so reactionary as a dm i have a lot of note taking that has to happen i'm very busy when it comes to my sessions to dming
1: right one of the things that you do which most people don't do dan is you do three people's turns at once I've watched you do this at many tables yeah. where you say, okay, um, Terry, you're up next. Dave, you're after that. Megan, you're after Dave. All of you, tell me what you're going to do and we'll play it out in order. And you juggle players like that. And then as soon as Megan starts talking, Terry and Dave have gone. You're like, okay, great. We've got Brad up next and it's back to
0: Terry again. And you will... Uh, I guess- no, no, no. You are a busy DM. I'm. Yes, I'm a very, very busy DM. I don't quite like tell me what three players turns is in a row and then we'll break it out. I have literally watched you do that with a campaign you tried to hand off to Brad. To be fair, there were eight of us around the table and we had two hour windows. Yeah, yeah. We had two hour sessions with eight players. Okay. That was a thing of the circumstance, but I do prime players as I go. Adam, you're on now. Megan, you're next. I, I have no interest. I have no patience for players who I go, okay, Brad, your turn, what do you want to do? Well shocking grasp, I guess like unless uh, the
1: circumstances have just been cut out from underneath you by the person yes, you.
0: yes, but like I've had players tell me in the past that you know they and this is mostly because of online uh, they shouldn't have to worry about paying attention to other people's turns. they shouldn't be expected to pay attention and stay engaged for everybody's turn. This is a narcissistic player that I don't want at my table collaborative storytelling exactly pay attention to everyone so it gets the combat over faster we have a limited window i don't play a lot of 10 hour games i got kids i don't got time for that anymore i play three four hour games at most right so i don't want to spend a lot of time in dead space while person who is scrolling facebook on their phone catches up you shouldn't be in that stage man like we're playing DD, put the phone away. I get I get we're friends, we're here to hang out. Put the phone away, focus on the game. If you are off programming something or watching YouTube, watching game YouTube has a problem with that or or something along those lines. If something is distracting you from the game, and, and it could be another one of the players whose turn it's not talking to you, fucking shut up. We will talk about, you know, how the Canucks are sucking this season next time or when the game is done. We'll have opportunities next week, too. Oh, (laughs) for the next four years, we will have that. But like, sorry, I went on a bit of a rant there. So to answer the question before the rant, what do I as a player want to see the most? I want to see the conclusion. And unfortunately, for my experience, a lot of the conclusion is dependent on every single person at the table chipping in, including the DM. And it's not all on the DM. It's also on me. So like... There needs to be that commitment to drive forward, and there needs to be those session zeros to set up that level of expectation to build into the excitement to continue the campaign forward, right? There are going to be weeks where a campaign is a slog, right? And says, okay, we got a gauntlet of combat to run down. No character development is happening. It's just 16 rooms full of demons, right? When those can't camp- when those sessions are over. We know that character development is going to happen in big ways afterwards, right? Because we're excited about the campaign, right? And that is on every single member of the party, including the DM, to build up and maintain that excitement. So, how often do you take notes then? Um, if I'm a player, I'm constantly scribbling little notes about every little thing, every no, name. But, or but as a DM, um, all the time, especially I like. If I'm running a combat here, I am also kind of keeping an ear to the conversation happening to the side about the fears of a NPC's methods or strategies, right? Um I I'm taking notes in the midweek of talking to my players about what they want to do. You see, right? I I'm I'm very different than you
1: in my my strategy sessions. I'm the guy that you say overpreps. I call it superpreps. Um, because I don't think you can over-prepare for d and um, I think you can waste your time by preparing the wrong things, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure you can over-prepare because what I do is I do all of my prep work and I sink all of my brain power into it so that I am not exhausted. I remember reading somewhere a quote that, uh, that said, the average person can make between six or eight major decisions in a day before they become mentally exhausted. I do run 10 to 12 hour campaign sessions. That is a lot of... Of things that I'm asking you to do. Whether it is... Do you go left or right? Which NPC are you taking with you? What spells are you going to use? Are you going to save that spell slot? Mm -hmm. Well, he narrows his eyes and says this... You rolled a two on your insight. What does that mean? Right? So there are a lot of things that you are trying to figure out. Not including traps, puzzles, riddles. There's a lot. Mm -hmm. And people walk away usually mentally exhausted. The other layer I put on top of my shit... Beyond the Hero's Journey... And the the basic plots and the dramatic situations is how many decisions should each character be making? I aim for five because we will create some as we go. Yeah. But I want people to just be completely exhausted by the end of it in a good way, Mm -hmm. right? That cathartic release of, wow, that was great. And then you go home and you sleep like a freaking baby because the adventure was amazing. So I'm writing my notes all the time because I am in pure reaction mode. I set up enough in advance so that it can carry me through three quarters of it because you can't prep for everybody and I cannot get my pacing perfect, especially for a 12 hour session. Yeah. That's like trying to plan for the average person three or four sessions worth of pacing. It's impossible to do. So I always give myself a little extra room there. And if that turns into breaks or inter-party talk or what are you going to do around the campfire this evening or just kind of the... Lesson. Filler. Yeah, it's not. No, it's not filler. It's details. Okay. Um, when I when I do my prep, I'm taking all these notes. They don't have an impact at this session, or if they do, I'm waiting for it to pop in at a perfect moment. Instead, I take the notes and then I go back to my 36 dramatic situations and I say, which one is good for this? Which one is good for this storyline? What about this character? And I look at it from all angles, too. We talked about this episode in a big way about the fact that you could be the guard. You could be getting past the guards. You could be the person being guarded. Mm -hmm. How many of those scenarios had three different parties involved? Or there was an implication of vengeance that that needed to be. What side of the room are you on? What side of the coin? Right? And so I make those decisions midweek. I take all my notes of nouns. And wants during the <laughs> session, and then I sit down usually on my drive into work, or later. I mean, it's no secret my girlfriend lives three hours in advance, right? So she's asleep by nine o'clock my time. That is the opportunity to kick my feet up, grab a beer, and just go. Hmm. Hmm. Dan said, "Magic sword." Hmm. What the fuck does that mean? (laughs) Right? And so I have the opportunity. When I say I do all these hours of prep, it's because I have these notes that I can go back and look at. And if I don't get to it this week, I'm playing the long con. Yeah. Yes. Five stages. Yes. 17 different parts of a hero's journey. There are 36 dramatic situations. There are three different kinds of conflict and, and antagonist. There are all of these different ways to look at it. But I have how many hours of a campaign to run i have 17 stages times four players is 68 different stages of hero's journey to go through and i know that i've got probably 300 hours of a huge campaign to go i don't need to get into anything this week yeah we are just going to fight darklings that's it it's going to be fun and interesting and weird one of you is going to get a mic and it growth behind your ear but like we're just going to get weird this session and then I'm going to hit you with your refusal of the call to action or the temptation by the goddess or whatever it is. This is where I start to look at it more protracted. If you've been taking notes or you're reading these books or you're thinking about these methods for d d even if you ignore this episode and just focus on the last episode for inspiration for different plot lines and whatnot, remember you don't have to inject it. I sit back. And I say, where is this naturally going to take me next? And if I push it in a direction and they don't go there, that's cool. We'll do it again later. Cool. Patience as a DM is my most important tool. That was, I believe, my biggest downfall. You mentioned the demons, the eight rooms of demons. I did 108 rooms of demons. I did a keep, an underground keep full of demons. 108 different stat blocks of demons and powers. It took us seven sessions, seven 12-hour sessions to clear that fucking thing. Yeah, that's a slog and a half. And there was downtime because there were seals that were put up to keep the demons in. So they could go back and rest and build back up their spell slots. So there was never really any danger. They had to do it within the next seven days in world. So they had all these these long and short rests that they could take. Mm -hmm. And my problem was that I wanted to experience all of these demons now. I want to clean out the keep now. I want to push this forward right here and right now. My players were pretty much like, we're four sessions into it and we're halfway done. Fucking yikes. Let's get back to the tavern and have a conversation with the Dwarven Smith over there because I just need a break in the demon slaying. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: that, I mean, that was a learning experience for me. That also taught me how to play with environment to mix shit up because they were like a well-oiled SWAT team at that point. Um, and I don't mean a well-oiled machine. I mean, they were like oiling each other's pecs and shit. They were like... Kicking, and just swatting each other. Yeah. On the butt. Yeah. But they were kicking that door open. And they knew. they It didn't matter. They weren't rolling initiative anymore. They're holding their actions and getting ready to go. And like, it was painful. Because I was impatient to get to play with this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I did that a lot in my early D&D. Um, and the idea of being able to sit back, trusting my players to trust me to go on the journey helped so much. And I guess that's that's the big thing that I really want to hammer home at the end of these big conversations about storylines. Yeah, Players need to trust your Dungeon Masters and include them in Session Zero.
0: Dungeon Masters need to trust their players. And include them in the plot generation.
1: Absolutely. When they say, oh, that's interesting, or, well, what does that mean? That is interest. Write it down. You may not get to it this session or next session, but your players will love it when you do get to it later. And then you don't have to sit there and go, uh, 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 shit. Um, well, uh, he's a pirate. Um, no, because you've done all that work in the midweek because you have your
0: list of fun shit to do. Do we have any final thoughts, Dan, before we wrap up? It may feel daunting as a new DM to apply five steps, three steps, 17 steps, 36 little plot hook. Take a moment with it and step back and realize that for the vast majority of players, they're not going to want to hit all 36 steps. They're not going to want to hit all 17 steps. Like you you, you don't have to be perfect here. No, you can skip bits and pieces. You can skip bits and pieces. Or you can go back and repeat them. Yep. You don't have to put a lot of work in to make it unrecognizable to the player that you're putting them through this this step it's not a lot of work to do it you get enough years of experience DMing and it almost becomes second nature to do this stuff I honestly write it out I have a page in my binder
1: with this shit listed out yep. so I can look at it and go oh I just picked up the word kin or "I just picked up the word temptation or I just picked up the word goddess oh there we go that gives
0: me my next thing yep and it also gives me a direction to go One of the things that I always, always, always insist my players when I DM, I insist they do. After we've decided what kind of campaign it is in session zero, once we've done the session zero and we've decided what kind of campaign we're going to run, we've decided, you know, what everyone's race and class are and maybe their background is is good. Before I say session one, get backstories. I don't care if it's a paragraph I don't care if it's seventeen pages. Get me backstories to work with for your character.
1: Incidentally, the correct answer is between a half page and three pages. That yes. is a correct answer because no DM has the opportunity to read 17 pages for five people. Yes. And no DM if that happens, don't be surprised for your DM to say, give me an extra week. Yeah. And if it's only a paragraph, it's not enough. Be prepared to role play harder to find out. And that's something that's else. That's fine. That's fine. That's something else that that I watch Terry do. He goes, I kind of, kind of think this. Bear with me. I'm going to figure out this character for the first three sessions, and he fucking nails it. Right. Yeah. So like, it is okay to take your time to have session zero be what are the boundaries, what are my general interests, but the first three sessions say wh- who is my character, what is this, what is this going to look
0: like. There's another thing I do, um, which I think you don't agree with, but I do uh, for my players. Any changes you want to make to your character in the first three sessions, I'm 100% okay with.
1: No, no, I'm on board with that. I also have, Dave and I had a big argument about this. Uh, I also usually include the pool of fate or destiny or whatever, which is literally a pool somewhere in my world where you can walk into it, essentially, quote unquote, make a wish and come out as a different
0: subclass. Yeah, okay.
1: You do not have to get married to the character.
0: Yeah, Right? Uh, so many people focus so hard. is like, well, if I make the decision, I'm locked in it. Nah, man, I'm giving you a few weeks to really discover who your character is. And if you decide, shit, Bard's not working out for me. I'm really playing this guy more like a rogue. Play a rogue, right? Um, shit, this guy's not a rogue. He's a monk. Play a monk. I
1: had a barbarian get trapped in Curse of Strahd where it was undead, 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 undead. It was all incorporeal. And he sat there and went... I can't do anything. I'm doing half damage. I will take sorcerer levels just so I can do damage. And then we played Curse of Strahd for seven levels. And then moved on into the next campaign when we escaped Barovia. And he went, well, now I'm a level four barbarian, level seven sorcerer. I didn't want to be a sorcerer. I'm still playing the character like a barbarian. What? Can I not be a sorcerer anymore? Yeah. And I mean, yeah, man. If you're not having fun. Yeah. Remember, one of the three things. This is evolution of imaginary people and events for entertainment. <laughs> and that is the big thing that we should probably end on is do what is going to be the most fun. We think that intrigue and and complexity is going to be the most fun for the average party and the our average party member as well. But honestly, if you are just surrounded by a bunch of Daves who want to swing their, their axe and say, yep, murdered another thing. Notch on the belt. (laughs) Then that's fine too. There is no right or wrong way to play D&D. But if you want it to go deeper, there are always ways to make it deeper. So we hope you learned something about story and character arcs in this episode. Come back next week when we jump back into 5th edition, get Terry back in the damn studio. Woohoo!
0: And dig around in, well, one half of the title of the game. Are we digging around in dragons? Because I, like... Terry, I think, would be down for that. That's it for this
1: episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website, www.itsamimic.com. And we also rely on word of mouth to get news of the podcast out there to the community. So please pass the word to everyone you know Though we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Thanks for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. You didn't know you were going to get that,
0: did you? Nope.
1: Thank you for listening to
2: another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. How many trucks can a tow truck tow? I am a tow truck, that's what I am. I come to the rescue of cars in a jam. Tire gone squoosh, bumpity whoosh, stuck in the snow, gas too low. Don't worry, I say. You'll be okay. Then I lift my hook and tow you away. Well, one fine morning I'm all alone. When a call comes through to the office phone, the big tow trucks are working in town, helping out cars that have just broken down. I think, "Uh uh-oh, some cars need a tow. I switch on my brights, and off I go. With my red lights turning and my blue lights winking, my headlights burning and my green lights blinking, I race to the place, and what do I see? Not another car, but another tow truck like me. His front right tire is very, very flat. It sits on the road like a big, squooshed hat. So I lift my hook, easy and slow, and before I know it, away we go. With my red lights turning and my blue lights winking, my headlights burning and my green lights blinking. I'm rolling along, and what do I see? Not a car, but another tow truck like me. Her engine won't start. She's down on her luck. I'll just have to tow two toes with my truck. The tow I'm towing lifts her up just so, and off we go, three toes in a row. With my red lights turning and my blue lights winking, my headlights burning and my green lights blinking. I'm moving along and what do I see? Tow truck in trouble, number three. His gas is low, his wheels are stuck. I'll just have to tow three toes with my truck. The toe being towed by the toe I'm towing. Lift him up just so, and we all start going. With my red lights turning and my blue lights winking, my headlights burning and my green lights blinking. I'm doing my job. I'm proud as can be, with three toes swinging in back of me. Three toes in a row are dangling back there. Rear wheels on the ground, front wheels in the air. The other toes doze, but I'm wide awake. I talk to my tires, my engine, and my brake. Little truck tires don't go squosh There's no one around to give me a push. Little truck brake, don't let go. There's no one here to give me a tow. Little truck engine, you are my heart. If you conk out, I will fall apart. Spark plug, spark. Fan belt, fan. Fuel pump, pump as fast as you can. If we all work together, I'll be big and strong. Then out of the blue, I burst into song. How many trucks can a tow truck tow? One, two, three, four, I don't know. But I'm sure as I'm sure, I'm a little tow truck. When a tow needs a tow, when it's down on its luck. Well, I look up ahead, and what do I see? The trucks in my shed are welcoming me, with their loud horns blowing and their signals glowing, and their big chains clanging and their side doors banging, and the old toes prancing and the young toes dancing. They can see me coming. They can hear me humming. I come to a stop. I turn off my lights. I feel I could sleep for three days and nights. There's just one thing I'd like to know. How many trucks can a tow truck tow? How many trucks... Can a tow truck tow, if a tow truck tows, tow trucks? Sir, we'd like you to leave the premises of the elementary school immediately.
1: Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production.
2: Okay, you're done. good.